Howdy. This is a lovely meeting, and I do hope I don't mess it up. Oh, I know how. I'd a greater messer upper than a cockroach. I've met a lot of people in my 31 years of drinking that I felt sure could drink more than I could, but I never met one that could drink any more or get any drunker. This is not new for me to be in the Dalton Hotel. I was first here in the lobby of this lovely building in October 1912. We came from Athens to Dallas on the train with a box of fried chicken and cold biscuits to go to the Dallas Fair. We had a sleeping room up on Packard, the other side of the Pacific, and we come down that evening after the fair festivities where we had seen a man actually drive a car 50 miles an hour. A man by the name of Barney Oldfield. And we walked through the lobby of this grand building and, and we peep pickers who gazed at the wonderful situation and it was great. About two o'clock in the morning we were awakened up there on North Acre by a clanger and a clam and got to the window and the fire trucks were going by. Fire flying from the shoes of the horses who were pulling these monstrous fire trucks. And it reminded me of a story I heard later on where this drunk got to the window and saw this thing. Here these fire trucks are going, the smoke are rolling. He turned around to his wife and said, Honey, they're moving hell out of this town. They just went by with a second load. I, I, I remember those things. I was back in this hotel again in 1919. I had a 30-day leave out of the Navy, and I got extended to 30 days, and I bell-hopped here in this hotel. I was back here in the spring of 1953, working for Hal Fish down there in the grocery department. I was back in this hotel in January 1948, and I woke up and I felt about like Andy did many times, about like you did, the wrecks and how many. I woke up and I didn't know where the hell I was except I knew I wasn't in jail. It was too nice. I didn't have any spring nitrous and grapes in jail, and I knew I wasn't there. January 1948, early in that month, Sitting on the dresser was a pint of Old Forester whiskey, unopened. Now, you don't get Old Forester whiskey in Skid Row where I was. I picked up the telephone and this lovely voice says, Good morning, Dobbs Hotel. I said, The hell it is. <laughs> so I said, I said, Young lady, what day is it? She said, It's Sunday. What time is it? It's 8.30 in the morning. Uh, thank you, ma'am. And I took another drink. Now, you'd bet on that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me that it's 8.30 Sunday morning and I'm going to work at Browner's Cafe on East Grand at 11 o'clock. I'm a cook and have been for many years. I've messed up more grub. I cooked some turkeys in Alaska once with the guts in them. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, it dawned on me that I'm going to work at 11 o'clock out of Browner's Cafe and it's 8.30 Sunday morning and I took another drink. I decided I'd take a shower and I said, hell, that won't do. I've got my clothes on. I come down out of this hotel and I started down Ackard by a Baker Hotel corner and somebody hollered at me across the street from the old Domino Hall. Hey, huh? I looked around and there's Dude Clark. Some of you may remember the old punch-drunk dude. I dearly loved you for a drinking friend. And I had to go across the street to see him, didn't I? We had to drink some, didn't we? Ten minutes to eleven, I run to get a cab to go to East Grand. It's quite long, three miles away. I got out there and went around. I know my way around. I changed clothes. I got my little beagle on. I got my little hat on to come out. And the chef said, you cooked a late breakfast order. If you see the thing I hate even now, is crying the damn day. Trying to open them, I always stick my thumb in them. The first order they gave me was ham and eggs with the eggs up easy. I got it going and I had them in the skillet and I turned them out on the griddle and put the pan bottom up on them to get them tasted just right. The chef walked over and said, we don't do eggs that way out here. I said, these ain't we eggs, these my eggs. That is. Yeah, I said, you can fix the next one, friend, but this is mine. And I, I fixed the order up and left. They still owe me an hour and a half pay all to go out there and get it. That's my way of coming up to this. I'm tech wine and alcoholic. <laughs>
Howdy. Being an alcoholic simply means that I can't drink alcohol with any manner of success. I've tried it. If there would have been any way in the world for me to have drank with such so-called success, I would have found it. Up in, up in southern Illinois, I drank like the Polish people. Poured whiskey on ice cream. That's a great thing. They never got drunk, but I fell out the back door. <laughs> I became an alcoholic with my first drink of liquor. My first drink. I have to begin to tell you of some things, and if you think I'm trying to tell you that my father made me an alcoholic, it's not what I'm talking about. I became an alcoholic because I drank alcohol. See, I have allergies. I'm allergic particularly to three things. I'm allergic to alcohol, work, and poverty. <laughs> yeah. I officially retired in June of 1962, and people say, Peck, what are you doing now? I say, not a damn thing, and don't start that till noon. Yeah. Yeah. When I got my Social Security record from Baltimore in June of 62, I got my Social Security card in June of 37 in Corpus Christi. And this record, this official record from Baltimore showed from June 37 to September 50, I earned $8,000. <laughs> That's the record. There it is. Oh, I had handled a lot more than that, Brent, but it weren't in the book. I have been known to purloin a buck or two. Now, my wife is here, and I told her before this started that I wanted her to write down these words that I slipped in there, and we'd go back to the room that's while I look them up. And if I say anything I'm sorry of, I apologize in advance. I want you people to know Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest thing that's ever been invented in my life. The greatest thing since inner spring mattresses, and they didn't have them in jail. I grew up down here at Athens, the home of peas, pigs, potted potatoes, peaches, and forty girls. I had my first love affair when I was eight years old. My papa caught me under the back of our farmhouse, was up maybe five feet off the ground with Ruby, one of the neighbor girls, all the kissing me. And Papa beat hell out of me. Down in the garden that afternoon, my daddy's brother, Uncle Jim, he never had a family. I was his boy all the years. And Uncle Jim said, your Papa caught you kissing Ruby, didn't he? Yeah. And he hooked you, didn't he? Yeah. And hurt Yeah. But let me tell you, Peck, uh, your Papa didn't hook you for what you are doing. He whooped you for being fool enough to get caught. And that took all of the steam out of that limb. It never hurt no more, and he never caught me no more, neither. Yeah. I don't know. Ah. But I tell you some of the things that the big book tells me to tell it like it was and tell it like it is. I must do that. Now, you talk about, they say in this, in this program, there's rigorous honesty. That was a foreign word to me when I got here. Now, my conversation with you, my talk with you will be here and there and about. Uh, hell, I don't anymore know what I'm going to say than you do. But I'm going to try to get you to understand it. Here in Dallas, not too many years ago, we took a picture of an unclothed man and woman. And we transposed a woman's picture on here. And I carried it out to her house and showed it to her and said, you can have the picture and the negative for $6,000 and she bought it. You see what I mean? About uh, three days later, I, would, I started to say I was living in the Hilton Hotel, but I was there and I had to say living. Bill McGraw phoned me. Any of you remember that man? Big red-headed at that time, he was district attorney, and he called me and said, Come down to the office, Peck, I want to talk to you. He's a good friend of mine. 
And I said, <laughs> I wonder what he wants now. Some kind of advice, surely. I got down there and the secretary said, Mr. Warren, he's in his private office. He wants you to come in there. This is new. I'd never been in there. And about this time, do you remember the big red-headed Bill McGraw? He got up. He opened this door. He said, come in here. And he didn't close it. He kicked it shut. And he said, sit down. I want to tell you something. And he poured me a half a glass of whiskey. Drink that and listen to me. If I hear of you stealing another dime from anybody, anyhow, in Dallas County, I'm going to put you in the penitentiary. Now you get up and get your ass out of here. That's all it was to it. The same man that engineered this nefarious practice with the picture got killed in the lobby of the Republic Bank building not long after that for something about the same thing. Some of you may remember the name. I don't mind repeating it. It's a record. It's history. He's dead long ago. Judge W.L. Crawford. See, I have been associated with thieves because that's what I liked. I was allergic to work. I sweat running my eyes and it burned me and I didn't like it. I found out a long time ago that guy in that gambling house with that little apron and that green shade on was in the right place or he'd come out there with me. Found that out. How many times have any of you said when my ship comes in I'll be all right? Mine's come in many times, friend, but I was laying drunk on the dock and didn't unload it. <laughs> yeah. Being the coward that I was, when I first came to Dallas in 1917, yeah, I worked right here in this hotel. I worked at the old little that was across over there. I didn't know anything about liquor. I was still scared. I was a coward. And soon after that, I was in the Navy. And still scared. And I went to Merrill Island out near San Francisco for my boot training. And when I got out of boot camp, they gave me a 72-hour leave to go into San Francisco. That night, in the, at the sundown of the Barbary Coast, in the old ivory palace, a fellow gave me my first drink of whiskey. And a new world opened up. I heard Joe Leaf, I heard one old Joe describe it so well. He said it was just like swallowing a small Chinese umbrella and it opened up in the stomach. <laughs> After that first drink, I was not afraid. I was not a coward. And I was later dragged back to my ship in San Francisco Bay, 44 hours over leave the United States in being in a state of war. And I don't know yet where I was nor what I did. And it never got any better for more than 31 years. I found a panacea for my ill, my ailment, my cowardice. I found a cure for this shortcoming. And I walked and wished that the first drink would done what the last one did. The last one in Houston under that Capitol Bridge... Chapter Street Bridge beat me to my knees and made me cry for help and brought me to you. If the first one had done that, I could escape more than 31 years of burning hell on this earth. I think I've been in 156 jails for everything from being seasick on the sidewalk to assault to murder. I've been in four insane asylums. I spent some time in Patton, California, one of the toughest in the country. And you ever stop to think about how fortunate we drunks are? We drunks are the most lucky people in all of the world. I carry a 14-inch scar up this left arm that I was back in the Navy in World War II, and I got it down in the South Pacific and come home telling people. I had 17 ribbons up here. And I tell them about how I got hurt in the war. Except I didn't tell them the truth. This scar comes from my man putting a 14-inch steak knife through and through my arm in a drunk fight aboard ship in December 1942. You see, I didn't want to tell the truth. It was a scar I have when my heart and my body came out of a bottle of liquor. My talk will not be from that time to this time because I'm left-handed. Hell, it may not come out the same. 
right here in Dallas in, in 1925. I was on a baseball team, the semi-pro club. And I was a good left-handed pitcher, except I couldn't throw it over the plate. <laughs> we were up at Van Austin one time playing, and I'll name you some people that was with us, Possum Eubank, Mike Parrish, Bill Rohde, Dutch Myers. They're gone now. And I turned to trap this guy off the first base and threw the ball over the fence and two runs brought it in. And my teammates wanted to kill me. Old, old Maloney, old Jim Maloney, the manager said, Let the son of Maloney left-handed, he may be crazy. <laughs> so you see, I didn't know what else to do. I never did come to you or anybody like you and apologize for anything that I'd said or done. I said, By God, they don't deserve any better. That's what I said. This went on and on and on and on. My wife is here. She don't like for me to talk too much about my gal life, I'm sure. And certainly not any about the money or lack of same. She's my fourth wife. You know, with a preacher in the papers. Yeah. I've lost a light housekeeper too along the road. Now you people, especially you young people in school now, there's a great teaching and a great discussion of sex. Hell, we had it in Athens way back when I was a kid. Yeah, but then they called it recess. Yeah. Hell, they didn't have any great writings or great teachings on it, you know. Why, of course they did. Buggies. Yeah, we rode in buggies, rode in Model T's, and we walked, but we had it. Yeah. Now, I never was much in school. I never got through the sixth grade in the country school at Athens. And I, I can remember the fifth grade. I didn't get promoted. This ain't new. But the day of the, of the promotion, or whatever you call it, I wasn't in class. I was down at Sid Richardson's Pond. The Richardson Pond was down close to the old Athens school. And I was down there up to my belt gathering water lilies for Miss Madge Howell, the teacher. And I brought them to her, an armload of these lovely water lilies. And she cried. And she said, Ben, I'm sorry. I had to fail you. Hell, I wasn't. It didn't bother me. This was automatic, I thought. But the world educated me. I learned some lessons, friend, that are deeply branded on me as any steer you ever saw in West Texas or New Mexico. The world branded me. And I was a willing subject. I never said no. I was ready for the whole work. I started boxing in the Navy accidentally. This was in World War One. Well, it was long in the summer of 1918. And on the ship this night, you're supposed to turn in your hammocks and keep silence about the deck at 9 o'clock. If any of you have ever or never slept in an old-time Navy hammock, you've missed something. I'll guarantee you, this is the sweetest thing. We had hell getting in it, you go over and whoop. But once you got in, then this was great. And there was some noises in this in this uh, compartment where we were. And about 11 o'clock, Jimmy Legs, I'd never forget that fellow if I lived a thousand. He turned all the lights on and he said, uh, Out of your hammocks. Ask your bag in the hammock, put them on the back, and report to the quarter deck. There was 38 of us in this compartment. And he got us out there on that quarter deck and we started dog trotting. And this thing, this thing weighs about 70 pounds, 60 something. Well, I was a thief even then. I didn't take my sea bag full of clothes, I just took my hammock. It weighed about 8 pounds. And he made us dog trot around the quarterback, quarter deck of this big cruiser. The hell, that ain't new. I've been running for years in Athens trying to catch a damn rabbit. 
didn't bother me. One guy went over and told Chief Miller that that, that tall Texan was the one that was making all the trouble. And he let the rest of them go back into the sleeping quarters about 3.30 in the morning and get me out there till daylight. Then my tongue put another scar on me. I said, I'm going to whip that stool pigeon, son. I'll tell you that. <laughs> then I said, what the hell did I say that for? This was on Wednesday. Friday morning, there's a notice on the bulletin board boxing on quarterdeck, 7.30, Warren and O'Day. I didn't even know how to put a glove on. I didn't want it. Well, I put it on, and I went out, and I knocked him out in three rounds, and back in the little, behind the canvas dressing room, Eddie McLarney, who was then welterweight champion of Pacific Fleet, come back there, and he said, Hey, did you know you could fight? <laughs> Scared the hell out of me. Well, but I started boxing in the Navy. And I started drinking at the same time because I needed, I needed that loosened juice. I needed that Dutch courage. I didn't have the guts to go through with it sober. Back on the beach, I boxed some. I, I boxed a guy in the... Here, I'll put the light off. I've done that before, too. <laughs> February 1919, I boxed Steve Dalton in Dreamland Arena in San Diego. I was six feet tall and weighed 154 pounds. And I can still hear the voices when I crawled up in that ring, get poor Skinny out of there. He'll break Slim Jim's bones. Don't let it happen. And I knocked him out in three rounds. And I come into the dressing room with my entourage of fair-weather people, and there was a dude standing in the room there. A little dressing room, and there's a dude there with a wide striped silk shirt. You remember those we used to wear? And a little bow tie and a seedy straw hat. Fine looking young fellow. And he said, uh, Sailor, you have got the finest left hand I ever saw tied up in the boxing glove. You can hit harder with your right hand than a mule can kick. I want to get you out of the Navy. I can get you out for $75, and I want you in my stable. I've got the champion of the world in my stable, and we want you with us. Then he turned to get my handbag off of the rubbing table so I could lay down, and he said, Whose whiskey is this in here? My God, it's mine. And he set the bag back on the table and walked out. February 1919. I didn't see him again for... More than ten years, I know. His name was Kearns, Jack Kearns. And the champion he had was named Dempsey, Jack Dempsey. But I didn't get to go with Jack Kearns. And this evening I'm glad I didn't. Because if I had, chances are I would not be here with you. And this I wouldn't trade for anything you could think of. Being here with you with a God-given sobriety that I never thought could exist. And the tears in my heart may not show in my eyes, but they're there. To be thankful and to have learned that I cannot be hateful and grateful at the same time. I'm not this pleasant all the time. I'm 75% son of a bitch and my wife will agree. I've got a loud, ugly voice. But that gives the other 25% a chance to come through because the old master performed a mighty fine operation on me. The greatest surgery of history, I believe. He removed my foot from the bar rail and a whiskey glass from my hand. You can't beat that. If that one can hold on to what this big book calls contented, contented sobriety, anybody in the world can do it. Anybody. I've had my cut at it, friend. That's I know. You bet your life. January 25, Mike Arnold's coming across the country. They're going to make him light heavyweight champion of the world. His name wasn't Arnold at all. It was Gavoulas. He was a big, fine, curly-headed Greek. And So they come to Dallas to box Beck Warren, and they said, Who the hell is he? He said, He's a farmer from down in East Texas. What can we do with him? 
Fight him. That's all he knows. So the big shots come to me. Now, Peck, this is your home territory. Mike's going to be champion of the world. You come out Friday night and do the best you can. He won't hurt you. And I took another drink and I said, you damn people have got him overrated. He ain't that good. Eddie Meade come from New York to Dallas with a five-year contract, the winner of this fight. And Eddie Meade was a big promoter. I went out Friday night and knocked him out in four rounds. The only time he touched me was when we shook hands before the fight. You can believe me, Fred. That's some of the old timers. That's Mr. Burke that lives here in the hotel. I heard some of the old timers that were here in the Roaring Twenties. They can tell you. But I didn't have it here, and I didn't have it there. Once out at Fair Park, I was boxing a pretty important fight, and I had a tall green wine bottle. The word was out that I had the beef broth and lime juice in it for quick strength. One night, Nicky Riley and Dude Clark drank up my whiskey between rounds, and I like to got killed. Damn right. March 1925, Johnny Selmar, some of you may remember the name. Johnny was, was about through then, but he was a killer. Oh, man, he was from Cleveland, Ohio. They had an arena out on North Haskell. Haskell Street arena, and Peck Warren's going to box Johnny Selmar. And I stayed sober for over a month. And I worked hard. They had a racetrack at Fair Park, Tim, and I'd run around it. Two miles every morning. And I worked hard and I stayed sober and he liked to kill me. <laughs> this is a true story. They stopped the fight in the sixth round, afraid I was going to get butchered. I boxed that man seven weeks later in the old ballpark across in Oak Cliff and whipped him till I got ashamed to hit me. <laughs> and I was drunk. And I'd walk around him and I'd refer to his ancestors. I thought you could fight. <laughs> Yeah, boom. Knock him down, ask the referee, let me help him up. <laughs> See, I didn't know what else to do. Did you? Did you did you drunks know what else to do? I didn't. I didn't. I'm glad I stayed drunk as long as I did. You see that hip door? I got three physical ailments, I think I told you. <laughs> I got bursitis, arthritis, and bitchitis. <laughs> The only help I find for that third one is to look in the mirror and say, Hey, fella, how many people tried to help me? How many? How could I name them? During all these years. Did you ever walk through the field, the woods, or the garden and step on flowers and hash them in the dirt? Do you think those flowers lay there in that dirt and die? They do not. You go back from there, by there two or three weeks later, and they're up waving in the wind, smiling at you. Just like the old master when he said, forgive them, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Or something like that. <laughs> I stepped on people exactly like the flowers. But it wasn't a step with intent to harm. It was the mashing of people by a blinded fool that didn't know where the hell he was going or what he was going to do when he got there. And the people that loved me the most, I hurt the worst. I'd been in A.A. quite a while, and I'd sail in merchant ships. I'd come off with a ship, particularly one time I'd come off in New Orleans, and I got $1,740, and I traveled all around. I'd been to an A.A. meeting in London, England. There's a wine here someplace he is. And I, I went to this A.A. meeting at Caxton Hall in London. It was the same as you had last night or you're going to have tomorrow, except they talked a bit different, you know. And we had a bit of a girl, we did. And after the meeting, this doctor came to me and he said, Hey, Texas, all right, what well, he said, you know. But I can't seem to broach this what business. I said, Well, doctor, don't you, you live out at Brighton Beach, don't you? That I do. Well, have you seen the seagulls out there? This was March of 52. You notice the seagulls? Well, of course I did. Well, had you noticed that they're not in a drove? There's just two 
mostly to them. Why, Jove, you're right, you know. I said, well, that's a man and a woman in bird feathers looking for an apartment, and they can't read the calendar. He said, by Jove, I believe I've got it. Just don't make me good. Hell, I ain't talking about being good. I say it over and over. Being good means... Well, I still think that a nightgown is something to be put on a chair by the side of the bed to be used in case of fire. This, I'm not good at all. Huh? Next to myself, I like silk the best. Oh, yeah. Any of you people here in this crowd ever drink any Tishner's antiseptic? There's a Cajun here. I think he's here. Ah, hi. Come, Polly. Who for Eric Moses? All right. Down in Mamou, we used to buy Tishner's antiseptic by the case. Twenty-four, four-ounce bottles, I believe. And this fellow that run this place was named Rodishaw. Yeah. And he asked the silliest question you've ever heard in all your life one morning. He said, what in the hell do you fellas mix this with to drink it? Mix it? Hell, that would ruin it. God, it was 27% alcohol and better than, than lemon soda. Why put water in it? There's so many, there's so many things that uh, I've told a story time and again. Let me do it again. About the guy, about the guy with the boomerangs. All right, mother. Okay. Here's this drunk. It could have been Andy. Here's this drunk, and he's having that you know. He gets an AA. He's been in AA seven months, and they told him when he started being sober that he'd have to have a hobby to fill up the void of the lack of drinking. So he centered on throwing a boomerang. Well, no. Yeah, he was right-handed. And, and he sold this thing. He had to throw it around his little house and kick it when he come back in the front yard. Hey, God, it's great. Neighbor come over one day and said, Joe, we love you, especially for being sober. You're a much better neighbor. Your family is happy. You get along all right. And I got you can handle that boomerang, friend. We watch you, and that's great. But the one you've been throwing is made out of wood. It's a wooden boomerang, and we notice it's pretty badly splintered and, and a little out of balance. Now, we have brought you one here that's perfectly balanced. This is a plastic. It, it, it is just the best in the world. Would have been a mighty good gesture that the poor alcoholic went nuts trying to throw the old one away. <laughs> That's exactly the way it happens with me with these defects of character the big book speaks of to get rid of. I don't want to throw them too hard and too fast they'll come back. Oh, I know about them. I heard somebody say a little bit ago that he worked the 12 steps. I haven't. I heard somebody say that first step was important. It is in my life. In the very beginning, I took the first step with any honesty that I could find. And honesty was a foreign word. And I crawled out from under that Capitol Street Bridge, October the 28th, 1949. I walked about 40... Puking blocks to 3511 Travis. And I fell in the door. I did. And a big red-headed ex-school teacher, and I'm sure our good friend from San Antonio remembers Gilbert Hale. Gilbert got there and steadied me up and helped me. He said, sit down on this couch, big boy. I'll get you a cup of coffee. By God, you stink. <laughs> I don't ever want to forget the first words that I heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if I don't remember what he said, I can do what I did, and I'll stink again. I'll stink again. I learned to remember that people told me in the beginning that I'd never enjoy drinking again. Don't try it. And I've known people in AA, there's some here, surely, that have tried it since their entrance into AA, and I'll bet you they'll tell you they did not enjoy it. 
There was an old boy come in the meeting one night in Tyler a few years ago, and he's all ginned up, and he come to me. And he said, I want to be chairman tonight. His first trip. I said, my God, it's all right with us, friend. Come on, you're elected. Oh, the meeting fix is starting. He kicking out. He said, he better not do that. He stayed sober about 14 months, and he, he was over in Chilgo. He said he'd drink a bottle of beer, and he needed to give a thousand dollars if he'd had that back. He stayed drunk a while. He's back now. He's got, oh, I think about 12 years sobriety now. But you see, nobody yet has been able to take a pickle out of a jar and make it back into a cucumber. So there's no way for me to figure that I can become a social drinker. There's a girl in Dallas. I hope she's here. I, I haven't seen her. Andy remembers her. She always said she was a social drinker. You remember her? She said, I mean, every time anybody said they'll have a drink, I'd say, so shall I. <laughs> yeah. A diabetic will die if he eats sugar, won't he? What's going to happen to an alcoholic if he takes a drink of alcohol? See, I know. You know. You've seen it happen. There was a man in our little town of Blevins, Arkansas. There's 265 of us there. And they're all kin except me, my dear woman, and our family. So you can't go downtown and talk to Aid Ember. You'll be talking about Uncle Joe's cousin. <laughs> but this fellow was, was just such a drunk as Tommy was, or Rex. Or you, pretty girl. He had reminded me. I heard a guy at Montrose one Sunday morning get in an awful jam talking about the, the, the drunk bottom. This old boy got up and he, he said, now, now I hit my bottom. He said, of course, an uh, alcoholic man or an alcoholic girl's bottom is dead. <laughs> and he said, out. Another fellow and myself at different times to talk to this fellow in our neighborhood, and I don't know what he told you, Older, but I know what he told me. I want you to go out to the house and talk to my mother. And I want her to tell you exactly what I told her. Keep your goddamn big Texas nose out of my business. By God, I can handle it. Anyhow. Three weeks later, he was found face down about six miles from home. He had parked his pickup and evidently thought he was home and started to the house, and he never made it. He was very dead. I didn't want Scotty to die that way. I could have. You could have. Except for this right here. This is a key that opened a dark room that I stumbled in for more than 31 years. The serenity prayer in the 12 steps. Opened that dark room for more than 31 years and this opened the door and I walked out into the light and there's people like you. When I was first in AA, nobody said, what size shoes do you wear? Nobody said, how did you vote in the last election? Nobody said, what church do you go to, if any? The man said, sit down, I'll get you a cup of coffee. By God, you stink. <laughs> I told Gilbert Hill I wanted to talk to Jack Nash. A man sitting within six feet, four feet, right here where we were talking, said, Hell, he's a big shot. He won't come out here. And our good friend from San Antonio can say that he did. He was there. I'd been in the ditch with Jack. He was raised on at Kaufman. He come out there. One of the first things he told me, I still remember. He said, Peck, if you stay in AA, you'll never want to drink again. I think he meant by that I would never have that undeniable urge. That, that, did you ever have that? That undeniable urge. That, eh? Hell, if temptation walked with me every hour of every day, I'd be drunk. I haven't got what it takes to overcome it. In Tyler, Texas, a few years ago, my dear wife fell. She was working, and she fell, and 
was having a squabble with a workman compensation thing, and it's pretty tight at our house. Pretty tight. Money-wise, anyway. A good friend from Corpus Christi heard about it, and he's a high-rolling gambler, and I've known him many years, and he called me on the phone from Corpus Christi at the town and said, Vic, I need you down here in the El Dorado Club. I want you for my floor manager. This is a polite word for a bouncer. I can pay you a hundred dollars a night, and I'll send you a couple of hundred to come on. Right away, I said, look at here, I can go down there, mother, and I can work a month, and we'll be in free and... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is a thief's job. I've got to steer you into the dice table or the card table. There's girls there, bless you, a pretty soul. Some of them wear low-cut dresses and, and wear loud perfume, and I'm allergic to that, too. And I didn't go to Corpus Christi. See? Somewhere along the line, the old master flashed a sign through this beat-up head. <laughs> you ever hear the story about the fellow that found the lion cub out in the, in the jungle? He found a lovely little lion cub, and he brought it home. And he made a lovely pet, and it grew up to be a great black mane lion. It was a beautiful thing. The children in the neighborhood, his children, rode it all around the street. One morning he was in the bathroom shaving, and he cut himself under here, and he didn't notice it. He went on, and the drop or two of blood hit the tile deck in the bathroom. And the big lion come padding in there, and he nudged him with his knee and scratched his ear a little and went on. And the lion was sniffing and sniffing, and he picked up those few drops of blood and jumped on that man and tore his throat out. He was still a lion at heart. I am an alcoholic. If I go to sniffing and licking in the wrong place, I'm a goner. <laughs> and that I know. That I know. Whatever else I do, I must not take a drink of liquor. Money. My wife don't want me to mention money. Well, I won't much. <laughs> We come into the month of May that's just passed with our little bank in Arkansas with a 47-cent balance, and that's all we had in the world. And it was black as Pa's old hat, and by God, we didn't have to worry about an over-shortage, whatever you call it. And right. This is right here. This right here has taught me to hold on to that, except the things that I cannot change. There's a man who lives within about eight miles of us, and I can take you tonight and go to his house and beat him out of $5,000 before daylight in the morning he thinks he's smart. You don't have to know anything about cheating. I'll do that. We can beat him out of five or $6,000 before sun up in the morning. And we can get drunk on the way home, too. Damn right. If I had, if I had a box of snakes, boxed up, that's all I'll have is a box of snakes. But if I lift that lid and go to the field and in there and see how they're getting along, I'm a corner. That's exactly the way I feel about this Pandora box of shortcomings that I have. I've got them. And I feel something like an old boy in the Patton State Hospital. God's a time to rain on. But uh, this old boy in the Patton State Hospital in California, don't let them signs fool you either. You see over on the terrace, you see that big sign of Texas State Hospital? That's a nut house, friend. Very foolish. But this boy, this boy was 23 years old and he was punch drunk. Ox good. But punch drunk at an early age fight. And I had known his daddy back in the so-called Roaring Twenties. And they decided on an operation for Ox. They go in here and they puncture these, they, whatever you call it. It's got a name, bodily or something. All right. When he come out of the hospital, I said, Ox, do you know about the operation? Yeah. Well, did it do all right? It helped you? Yeah. He said, you know, Peck, I used to hit people like that, and now it takes two. <laughs> what he meant was I still have the impulse, but I don't hit people. I have the same impulses that I had 30 years ago. I don't go through with the act. 
ارزش نبود What can I be besides thankful? From the gutter to here was a long, hard trip. We all paid a dear price to get here, friend. And yet I have to realize it was bargain day in the basement. I'm so thankful to the old man upstairs that I could pay whatever it took to get me here. Some of them didn't manage to pay it. Some of them were found face down in Arkansas, laying in the mud, trying to get home. Some of them were found under the bridge where I stayed for three months in Houston. One was found not long ago in the Athens jail, hanging by a window cord, very dead. How do you say thanks in words, really? How do you say thanks in words? Words are formed by lip and tongue and dictated by heart. If I say thanks to the old man upstairs, it's enough for me. I made a talk in the Presbyterian... Is that a dirty word? I made a talk in the Presbyterian church in Athens a few years ago, Sunday evening in the preacher's place, like you make, like she makes. The next morning on the street, here comes Jeff Sweeten down the street, and he stopped and shook hands with me again and he laid the arm of friendship on my shoulder and said, Peck, I heard you last night and I appreciated what you said. I remember back in your drinking days here in Athens how I tried to help you and you wouldn't let me. But tell me, what do you know about prayer? I said, I don't have to know anything, Jess. All I have to do is say, thank you, God, as I understand you because I've got everything I'll ever need right in my fingertips. Up there in Arkansas, I've got gardening stuff with my wife and I in boxes. Boxes are eight feet long. They're about two and a half feet high and they're 30 inches wide. I don't have to bend over to get a tomato. Right there. Am I going to stand out there and say, Oh, Lord, let it rain on my tomato. Uh-uh, I'm going to get a hose and water them by God. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And don't you sit under an apple tree and pray for pears because they ain't on there. Don't you do that. Uh, I didn't ask you not to pray. I didn't say that. I didn't ask you not to go to church. You do whatever the dictates of your hearts guide you to do. I like to remember... I like to remember some of the things that I heard. That, uh, <laughs> this old boy in court, and the judge said, you, you watch it there. You're showing contempt for this court. And the swine said, I've got it, judge, but I thought I was concealing it. <laughs> yeah? I had a police sergeant in Houston in February of 45, shortly before I went to Alaska, to tell me, you son, that you stay in this deal more than I do, and I work here. <laughs> Assault to murder. I mentioned that. It happened in Houston. That was the time. This guy in Lewis Ebert's bar there on Preston by the old courthouse was... He came over and attacked me. And I let him hear <laughs> Shine boy Alex said, look out, Miss Peggy. He's getting a knife out of his pocket. I said, he's too busy to use it, friend. Because I'm drunk and I ain't that sense enough to be afraid. And I drug him out in Preston Avenue and tried to get the cars to run over him. Yes, I did. Ah, oh, yes, I did. Well, you know I wound up in jail, don't you? The next morning, they're going to take me down to Judge Miller. He's dead now, Judge Cleo Miller. At one time, he was a son-in-law of the late Governor Ross Sterling. See, I knew a lot of fine people. They're going to carry me down there. The judge is going to turn me loose, but they didn't carry me down there. They put a big white strap on me with handcuffs, and I stopped in front of a door marked Homicide Bureau, and I stood charged with assault to murder. Buster Kern, who was later sheriff, was then inspector of detectives, and B.W. Payne was chief of police. An old Captain Rice, 34 years in the police, said, looked up at me and said, Peck, I'm afraid you've gone too far this time, son. I don't think I can help you. And then I got that break that we drunk. You've got all these years. We're the luckiest people in the world. They sent two young policemen out to old Jeff Davis Hospital to see how the victim was getting along, and they come back in due time laughing and said, he, he ain't going to die. Oh, he's pretty badly beat up, all right. He got three busted ribs, fractured jaw, and an ear half torn off, but 
The nurse caught him this morning with a bottle of wine in his bunk, and some of the Skid Row buddies slipped in there to him, and they put him out of the hospital. He's on the street. He ain't going to die. And they put the arm of friendship around my shoulder and said, Ha, that's a pretty good boy. He just drinks too much. Judge Miller, now it's 1.30 in the afternoon. He's still sitting down there in the courtroom waiting for me. And these two young cops escorted me down there, and, 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 and Judge Miller said to these young policemen, said, Do you know this fellow? He said, No. We don't know him, but we're acquainted with him. Well, I said, that's Peck Warren. He's brought up to Athens, and I've known him a lifetime, and he's, he's a pretty good man. He, he's all right. This cop said, if you'd have seen him trying to get them cars to run over him, I don't think you'd appreciate it. Judge Miller said, let's see, you're charged with drunk in a public place. I believe that. You stay tonight in jail to find $3. You don't have to pay an assault to murder dismissed for lack of record against no prosecution presented. And guess what he said then? Peck, do you have any money? Uh-uh. And they gave me three dollars. This was about one thirty in the afternoon. It was about one thirty in the afternoon, and I didn't get back in that jail until eleven fifteen that night. You see, a machine that'll play a record like that over and over has got to have faults in it. This is not a good thing, but there I was. They brought young Stribble into Dallas. I boxed him here in Dallas, August the 25th, 1925. And uh, my then wife had had a baby, the 23rd, I believe. And I didn't see that baby until he was nearly two weeks old. But I was busy. Time to go? All right. Just got the word. <laughs> There's a guy in Little Rock, a news, news broadcaster. He'll look up at the clock and he'll say... I see my time is up. Thank you for yours. All right. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks, Cersei. Thank anybody that had anything to do with it. Thank you so much for the kind, clean place to sleep by that Comanche of mine. Thanks for all of it. Let me leave you hurriedly with this. The sands of time slip slowly and surely through the hourglass of eternity and not a grain will stay. So take your happiness while you may. For past regrets and future fears will bring us naught but blinding tears. If we can hold the hand of a God of our choice, we cannot lose if we listen to that lovely voice. And God bless you and thank you.